Welcome to Start to Finish, the XRTZO podcast, where we explore the scriptures to prepare and equip real people for real purpose. Here's your host, Dr. Christopher Romano. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in again to the Start to Finish podcast. I appreciate you all so very much, and I'm excited as we continue our series on the subject of the kingdom of God. In the last two episodes, we looked at the subject of meta-narratives, or as we called them, the big stories of the Bible, and how it's important to understand the Bible is actually framed and shaped by these two large and overarching stories, the stories of kingdom and covenant. Now, everything that is in the Bible, from the wonder of creation to the bliss uh, of the garden to the treachery and horrors of the fall— from the hope that is in all of our heroes of, of the faith, the Noahs, the Abrahams, the Josephs, he's a personal favorite of mine, the Moseses, the, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Esthers, the, the Davids, all the way to the birth of our Savior, the events of his life, the details of his passion, and the glories of his resurrection. All of it, absolutely all of it, finds its source in the large overarching stories of kingdom and covenant. Now, if for some reason you missed those episodes, I strongly encourage you to go back, listen to them before continuing with today's episode. So kingdom and covenant, they provide the structure that we need to begin our exploration of the massively huge topic of the kingdom of God. They not only help us with respect to understanding the Bible properly, but I hope what you saw, particularly in the latter parts of the last two episodes, that they help us with having the right perspective for the way in which we are to live our lives. So consider the following. We looked at covenant. Now, covenant is the way in which God created us to relate to him. He made us for relationship. He rooted us in his love and in his faithfulness. He loves us and it's that love that provides us with a platform by which we can love him back. Now, this relationship, it comes with the essential truth that we belong to him. We are not our own. Paul says this so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. It reads like this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, when you understand covenant, then you understand rightly whose you are. You are God's. You are his. But the flip side of that is he is yours. He has pledged his commitment to love you, to care for you, to provide for you, and to protect you. It's all in the same reality. But covenant is all about relating to the one that you belong to. Let me say it again. You are his. And it's this that defines and characterizes your identity. Covenant provides for us a proper identity. So whose you are gives us the basis for understanding who you are. And the importance of this cannot be understated. Now, if we're looking at it properly, most people try to form 
their own identity. They try to carve it out for themselves. And typically, uh, this is sought through striving, working, achieving, performing. In fact, I was thinking about it. It's probably true to say that when looking at the source of our identities, we rarely look back to the fundamental truth that we belong to another. In other words, it's barely given any thought that our true selves, the real you, the real me, is actually birthed from something outside of you, outside of me, or more appropriately, someone outside of you. Now, of course, there are human facets to this, parents, ancestors, and they determine biologically, physically who we are, as well as they provide a certain cultural and ethnic foundation that, that does play a role in determining aspects of our identity. However, when you look at the truth that you and I are tripart beings, that we are actually a spirit who possess a soul and have or live in a body, right? Our identity is more than our last names. It's more than the color of our skin. It's more than the language that we speak, that our true selves are found when we truly know that we belong to another. We are God's he is ours. And it's through this discovery that we begin to unlock who we really are. Now, there is so much to this. I find myself saying the same thing when we looked at covenant briefly. Um, we'll, we'll look at identity certainly more in the days and weeks to come. But for, for now, it's enough to, to land at this. Whose you are teaches us who you are and who we are our identity is where we find our purpose, what we are to do. Relationship determines identity, which releases us into our purpose. Whose we are teaches us who we are. It really defines for us who we are. And then who we are just, just opens the door to discover our, trio, our true and our real purpose. And our purpose, as we saw last week, is the responsibility we have to rightly represent our God as his image-bearing witnesses throughout the earth. It's entirely, our purpose is entirely connected to our true identity and the covenant relationship that we have with God. And we can see this clearly by looking at Jesus again. He knew who he was because of his relationship with his father. And this freed him to know exactly what he was to do in his earthly life. Jesus went around doing good. Jesus went around teaching people the message of God's kingdom. Jesus healed people. Jesus set people free. Jesus delivered people. Jesus loved the unlovable. Jesus went to the cross to die a death that we deserve, right? Jesus knew his purpose. It was clear. I love the scripture in Hebrews. It says that he despised the shame of the cross because of the joy that was set before him. His purpose was clear. Why? Because his identity was defined by his relationship with God. And it's the same for you. And it's the same for me. Now, the actual particulars, of course, are different. But my purpose is and your purpose is found in the connection with who we are and whose we are. And that is the formula for true freedom. Any other formula is foolish. It's frustrating. And it's incredibly enslaving. Guys, covenant and kingdom is not just a Bible study. 
It's the launch point for experiencing the full and flourishing life. It's the life that God designed us for. It's the life that Jesus saved us for. Now, we have to turn the page on the subject of meta narratives and big stories because we have to get to the next chapter as we move along in our study of the subject of the kingdom of God. And our next stop, if you will, is as equally important a building block for grasping the kingdom. And that building block is the king of the kingdom. So any talk of a kingdom must first begin with this very fundamental truth. Every kingdom has a king. Every kingdom has a king. And so to truly understand the kingdom of God, it's first vitally important to grasp the reality of the king of the kingdom. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of First Chronicles. This is a passage I often will turn to when I'm teaching on the subject of the kingdom. Uh, First Chronicles chapter 29. Now, we're going to be reading verses 10 through 13. And as you're turning there, just a little backdrop. This is a prayer, actually, uh, from King David. And King David is at the end of his life. In, in fact, uh, the best way to, t- to explain this is everything that you know about David has already happened. Okay. Uh, Goliath has happened. Uh, all of his uh, issues and struggles with King Saul, they, they've happened. The, um, the family uh, dysfunction uh, where Absalom, his son, is trying to take over David's throne has happened. So obviously David had, had, has become king. Um, David's um, sin with Bathsheba, David's murder of her husband, Uriah, uh, everything you know about David has already happened. This is David at the end of his life as an old man. Yes, he is still the reigning king. And he had one desire of his heart. Really, he had one obsession of his heart. And that obsession was he wanted to build God a house. And unfortunately for David, God is going to slam the door shut on that. He's going to say, no, you're not building uh, the house. Your son Solomon is going to build the house. But how many know that when uh, someone is obsessed, they can't be stopped? So David, uh, when he, you know, when he came to terms with the fact that he couldn't build God's house, he said, okay, if I can't build it, I'm going to fund it. And boy, does he pour out resources. He lavishly, generously gives to the building of this tabernacle, of this temple, I should say. And that's really the backdrop of this prayer. Uh, David has made an appeal to the leaders in Israel to give towards this project. And so it's David's actual generosity that inspires other people to give. There's a great principle in that as well. So let's read this prayer. And the primary reason for reading this prayer is because as I read it, you'll notice in the language of his prayer, David gets kingdom. He has a revelation that God is the king. That's a revelation that we'll be talking about in the remainder of this episode. That's a revelation I want you to really grab a hold of. Verse 10, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 10. Then David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, may you be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom and you are exalted as head over all. Verse 12, riches and honor come from you, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks 
and praise your glorious name. What a prayer. Uh, you know, that's not the Lord's prayer, but that is a, uh, that's a great model and a pattern for prayer because let's face it, most of us don't pray like that. We are filled with asking God for stuff. We were great at petitioning God and there's nothing wrong with petitioning God. We should ask God uh, for our daily bread among other things. But if the, sum, if the sum total of our prayer, if the substance of our prayer is just asking God for stuff and instead of just sitting at his feet, looking into his heart, looking into uh, the reality of who he is. And in this case, in this context, particularly God as supreme authority, God as a God of power, God as a God of might, God as the God who, who is in control, God is the God who is over all things, uh, both in heaven and on earth. That's what David acknowledges throughout this prayer. And if somebody knew something about authority, it was David, because the man who's praying this prayer is a king. He's a king of a superpower. Israel at this time in history was a great nation, and David was at the top of the pecking order. But even David understood rightly and properly, that his authority um, is really a puppet on a string because his authority is ultimately submitted to the authority of God Almighty. Now, we need an understanding of God as king. And, and to do that, I think one of the best things to do is to recognize that God in the Bible is revealed first and fundamentally as king. It's the first picture of God that we get, and it's the last picture of, we, of, of God that we get. So, so actually, if you did this, now I was given this assignment by a mentor of mine many years ago, and he said to me, he said, I want you to read the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible uh, seven times a day for seven days. So of course, that's Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. And he said, read it seven times a day for seven days. Now, that was quite the task. I mean, the reality is it got redundant. Um, it, was, it was repetitious. And, uh, you know, at, at the first day was tough. Even the second day was tough because you want to read something new. You don't read the same thing every single day. But, but I, I stayed true to the assignment. And it, I'm, I'm so glad I did because it was actually so rewarding. It was so life-giving from the standpoint of, of the parallels I began to see um, and the, 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 the reality that what you, what you come away with upon reading those, those passages is actually an understanding of the authority of God, of the power of God, of the majesty of God. And what I'm sharing with you here today in this episode is that the, the importance of seeing that the Bible bookends are God as king. The first two chapters of Genesis, the last two chapters of Revelation, both have the same picture of God, and it's that God is a king. Now, think of it this way. In Genesis, God is king over his creation. So the first picture of God isn't as a creator. It's as a king who creates. He's on his throne. Now, you don't see his throne, but he's on his throne, and he's issuing commands, commands like, let there be, let us make, you may eat freely. Commands come from a ruler. They come from an authority figure. So what you have in Genesis is God on his throne issuing commands. He's making decrees, 
And what's so awesome to see is that all of creation is responding the way it should in glad and loving submission to his authority. That's in Genesis. Now, when you go to Revelation, you actually see a throne. There's a throne there in the midst of, you know, the, the, the heavens of the earth being united, the new Jerusalem, it's the city of God. And what you have there is you have God on a throne reigning over his new creation, the ones whom he has washed in the blood of his son and brought redemption and salvation to. So the first picture of God as king, the last picture of God is as king. You know, there's something obviously to this. And another thing that I came away with upon doing that assignment was this, that there's also a sense of peace. There's a sense of order. There's a sense of unity. There's a sense of harmony. It's, it's the Jewish or the Hebrew word shalom, where there's nothing absent, there's nothing missing, there's nothing dysfunctional, right? The seas aren't trying to be the skies, uh, light isn't trying to be dark, um, you know, mountains aren't trying to be rivers, man's not trying to be a uh, woman. I mean, if, if you just, if you look at it as, as, a, as a whole, in, in both passages, there's a sense that creation and, and new creation in Revelation it's, it's responding to God the way that we all should. And unfortunately, of course, um, in the midst of, of those two bookends, uh, that's not what happens. It's, it's utter chaos from the fall onward. But the, the point is this, that when God is, is, is visibly seen as the king, is visibly understood uh, to be the supreme authority, then there's order. Things just are, are, are clicking. Things are, are working the way that they should. And this is such a contrast to one of the passages in the scriptures in the book of Judges. Actually, it's the last uh, verse in the book of Judges, uh, in Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. Now, the, the book of Judges is, is summarizing a 300-year period in Israel's history. It was just turbulent. It was just chaotic. It was just sin-laden. It was just crazy uh, because the, um, the, the Jews had turned their back on the God who had made a covenant with them. And, and they began to rebel against God and they began to be disobedient to his word and they worshiped other gods. And it's just a sick cycle of, of them just turning their backs on God. And the end of the book, the last verse is actually the summary statement for the whole book. And in Judges 21 and verse 25, it reads like this. It says, in those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's what happens when there is no king. And, and particularly when God isn't king, when, when the rightful king is not on the throne of our life, of our world, of our nations, of our marriages, of, of, of our lives. When, when the rightful king isn't on the throne, then people just go crazy. People, people just do what's right in their own eyes. And that's that's not God's design. That's not God's blueprint for success. That's not how God uh, created uh, the world or created humanity. He created us to be submitted and surrendered to his authority. But to do that, we need to recapture the picture and the portrait of God as a king. And he's not just a king. He's not just a ruler. He's a perfect king. He's a loving king. He's a merciful king king. He's a king who serves. He's a king who has power. He's a king who's holy. He's a king who's righteous, but he's a king also who, who bestows uh, the kind of, um, the kind of 
essence that offers us an invite to enter into his presence. He's a God who wants to be with us, who wants to dwell among us. He is so amazing. And as we begin to land the plane, I, I wanted to just draw this, draw this out even more, that when we see God as king, then we see that he has two primary uh, attributes to his royalty. Number one, he has incomparable majesty. His majesty is incomparable. There is no one like our God. There have been rulers. There are rulers throughout history, but there's no one that compares to God. He is a God all by himself. He's a king all by himself. There's no one that's like him. And he's also uh, one who possesses incontestable authority. So he is incomparable in his majesty, and he is incontestable in his authority. Now, some have tried, some have tried to compete, but they have utterly failed, whether it was Lucifer, whether it was Pharaoh, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar, whether it was Herod, they have all tried uh, to, to overthrow God. They've, they've all tried um, to, to defeat God, and God has proven to be the winner uh, every single time, and he will, because he cannot be defeated. He is the un defeated one. He's a God uh, who, who absolutely knows no, no competitors. And that's what the first commandment uh, in, in the Ten Commandments teach us, right? Uh, that we shall have no other gods beside God, beside Yahweh. And that's a reminder that God is not going to tolerate any competition for his throne, be it from an evil dictator or from uh, someone like you or someone like me. Because the reality is that's the nature of sin. Sin is in its essence, seeking to establish our own authority. Uh, it's that dysfunctional desire we have to be our own boss, to be our own king. I, I, I love what Tim Keller said. He said that, um, you know, we don't want a king. We want a consultant to advise us as we order our own lives. <laughs> That's so good. And even if we did want a king, we certainly don't want to live like subjects. I don't want to live like Jonah, the prophet Jonah in the Old Testament, who was constantly kicking against the goads. He was constantly um, opposing God's will, running away from God, shaking his fist up at God, arguing against God, questioning God. You know, I learned a long time ago that it's okay to ask God questions, but we don't question God because he is always right. He's always right. And not only is he always right, but he's always good. He knows what he's doing. He is he is in charge, and we need to we need to allow him uh, to be in charge. So we don't we don't want to be like him. And it's it, funny because in that book, the book of Jonah, Jonah is the only one who is uh, rebelling and opposing God. Um, you know, the seas respond to God in submission. Uh, the great fish responds to God in submission. Uh, even even the, the the evil nation of Nineveh is is going to repent and respond to God the way that we should, but, but it's God's prophet uh, who doesn't. And that is such a, um, that it, that is such a, uh, a, a terrible example that, that we are to avoid for sure. So God is the king. And as king, he wants, he wants you to submit to him. He wants you to surrender him. He wants you to bow your heart. He wants you to bow his name. You know, I know from personal experience, it's easy to receive, to receive Jesus as Savior, but it's not as easy to receive him as Lord. And, and part of that has been compounded because we only 
typically talk about God as a God of love, as a God of mercy, as a God who forgives, a God who is full of grace. Um, and, and, and that's all true. It's all uh, the right way to view God. But we need to balance that with the, 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 the reality that God is our authority, that God is our master, that God demands that, as he says in Luke chapter 9, and verse 23, he says, you know, if, if we're not willing to deny ourselves, if we're not willing to pick up our cross and follow him and not try to blaze our own trail and not try to, you know, um, to dictate our own uh, path and direction, but we're to follow him wherever he leads to whomever he leads us to, we're to follow that then we're not worthy to be his disciple. That's the way it works. We don't just accept Jesus as savior, but we also accept him as Lord. And I just want to encourage you to kind of do a little bit of, of an assessment, you know, with your own life. You know, A.W. Tozer has this fantastic quote in a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. Uh, it's a book about the attributes of God. And, and he says in, that, in the book, actually in the early parts of that book, um, he makes a statement. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Now, I think that's a great place to land the plane today. Would you give consideration to that? What comes into your mind? Is it, is it, is it exclusively that God is a loving, merciful, forgiving God? Or do you truly, not just in pretense, not just in confession, but with your life, do you live under the authority of King Jesus? Do you live in submission, in glad, willing submission to his authority in your life? Or do you need to repent? Like Jesus in his first and primary message when he came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to repent. What does repentance mean? It means that you need and I need a change in government. We need a new authority. We need a new ruler. We need a king and not just any king, but we need God as our king. I want to offer that to you today uh, as we uh, close this episode out. And, uh, and, and, and really, I could, I could offer you from personal experience, the more and more and more we get this down deep within our soul, that God is king, the more it will change our lives, the more it will transform our life, the more it will affect our prayer life, the more it will affect the way in which we serve him, we serve uh, him in our, in our local churches, the way that we ultimately serve him in his kingdom. So with that in mind, uh, let me pray with you. Let me pray for you. And, uh, and we'll get about our day. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to explore this amazing subject of, of, of your authority, your power, um, your ruling, your reigning as our king. I pray, God, for each and every one of us that we would truly search our hearts, that we would, um, would test the spirit of, of this teaching and truly allow it to instruct us, truly allow it to convict us, and truly allow it to redirect us, if necessary, to the place where we just don't see you as the savior of our sins, but we also see you as the Lord and master of our futures and of our lives. Uh, I ask these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Well, be sure and tune in to next week's episode in our series on the kingdom of God. We're going to be looking into the relationship between the kingdom and the cross. It's an important topic, and really it's the last step before we get into clearly defining what the king, what the kingdom actually 
is. So be sure and tune in again. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe, follow the show. And if you'd be so generous, leave a review and a rating so we can get the word out to as many people as possible. Until next time, be well, be safe, be blessed. I'll see you all again real soon. Take care.